When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. We are on a journey through uh, the first 13 chapters of Samuel. We're up to chapter 8. Um, it's been a really good story, a gripping story, if you've been able to be here for the last five weeks or so. We're up to a real turning point in chapter 8 where people come before God, as you sensed, with their own desires, their own wishes. And yeah, then we'll flesh out a little bit more how God responds to that and how he feels about that. Uh, but how about we pray first that God will speak to us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your love for your people. We thank you that when we come to you, that when we trust in Jesus, we can be a part of your family. And Lord, we pray now that as you promise that you'll meet with us, that you'll speak with us, and you'll draw us near to you in your loving arms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you uh, have been a child and you've got a dad, any kind of dad, you'll have this phrase of, ask your father. You know, if you need help with anything, who do you go to? Well, if you go to mum, she should probably say, ask your dad. Uh, he'll help it out. He'll sort it out. Even this morning, I just happened to bump into my daughter this morning on Father's Day, and she says, Dad, can I see this afternoon so you can read over my assignment? Ashes in creche. I can get away with that one. Uh, it's like, ask Dad. He'll help you out. He'll come. But what I'm thinking is that photo, um, you know, kid goes up to Dad, Dad, I need some money. He pulls out his wallet, pulls out a a note, gives it to his son, dad's happy, the kid's happy. Pretty rarely happens that way, right? That's a bit of a Hollywood photo. Uh, I know, you know, at least in my household, that's how it works. Um, see, dads are smart. Dads are smart and they need to know stuff. And kids know that. So when kids want to, they want stuff from dad, you don't just come straight out, dad, I need some money. You actually have to come up with a story, don't you? Because dad will want to know why, and if he wants to know why, probably won't like the idea. So I've got to come up with a story. Dad, can I have some money? So I need to buy some stuff for school or uni or stuff, stuff like that. You know, hopefully that's a big enough story to get away with. Dad, I notice there's no milk in the fridge and I was just going to borrow the car to drive down. Can I have the keys, please? You know, you kind of need a story to, you know, just ease Dad. Just everything's okay. We need to, you know, how am I going to get away with as much as possible? That sort of thing. But Dad's a smart so we know there's always an agenda. I'm just, uh, yeah, if, 
I'm just letting you guys know this is how it is and you need to up your stories if you're going to do that. Uh, we know there's a story behind it and we know you're probably making something up because uh, we won't like what you're doing with the money or with the car or stuff like that. So dads have three strategies to find out what's the reason you're asking, what's, what's behind the question, what are you up to is basically it. Now you could ask questions if dad's a bit tired and a bit unimaginative, it just says look what are you doing with the money? What are you going to spend it on? And are you catching up with friends with that? And do you really need that? You could just ask straight out. We know that rarely works, right? So there's another two strategies we've got up our sleeve to, uh, to work out uh, what's going on. And that is, uh, second way is to do a deal. So, oh yeah, I, you know, yeah, sure, here's 10 bucks. But, you know, we'd love a hand in the kitchen. Um, yeah, can you do the dishes? You, know, you, you work out a deal to get the money. But it's not about the deal, isn't it? It's not about just being fair, you know, 10 bucks is worth helping it cleaning up the kitchen. It's how big a deal is the 10 bucks to you? What do you really want it for? And how do you want to, in a sense, bribe me so I won't ask any more questions? So you go, how about you clean up the dishes first? Yeah, fine. That's too easy. For the next week, so you keep adding to it, right? You make the deal bigger and bigger because the bigger the deal is and the bigger they agree to it, you know, there's bigger, they're up to something, right? So how about you do the dishes for a week? Yeah, yeah, I'll do the dishes for a week for this bit of money. Uh, you know they're up to stuff. So you do the deal to work out, is it a little thing? Is it a big thing? What's behind this story? If that doesn't work, there's a third way of trying to work out what's going on behind the scene and that is to wear the kids down wear their patience down. And the best way to do that is to tell a story. You know, Dad's good at that. You know, when I was a kid and I wanted that from my folks, I would have to do this. And it's, it's not about the story. It's just if the kid just goes, oh, whatever, and walks away, you know, they don't really want it. But if they're willing to listen to you to the end of the story, and the more you suspect, suspect, suspect something's going on, the longer you make the story, uh, and they're willing to listen, you go, there's really something going on here. There is. There's something going on behind their request and their favour. Dads are smart. They're like that. They know what's going on, or at least know there's something going on. Uh, it's just a matter of outsmarting the kids. That's the battle. It's a game we play, right? The kids come up with a, an innocent story to try and get the, what they want. The dads go, no, nah, no, nah, here's, here's a few things I'm going to uh, throw back at you. So there's this game that happens. Now, it's kind of fun at homes. Ashley asked me to read over an assignment and I come back at her and go, okay, what are you going to, you know, it, uh, it works like that. But it seems crazy, but we often do the same thing with God. You know, when we want something with God, something from God, uh, we take our request to him as we prayed this morning. God loves it when we come to him in prayer. Uh, but we, God's not going to like it if I come straight out and I want this. <laughs> I need this. Or it's more, how do I turn my want? These are things I want. What sort of story can I put out to God to make it a need? God, I really need this. Because that's what kids do to parents too, right? How do, God, how can I get this? And God knows. God's smart. He knows what's going on. Now, if you've been on this journey through Samuel, you've seen Israel have been playing these sort of games with God for a long time. They try and... Uh, 
put him in a box. They try and tame God by just playing the religious things. If they do the religious things, God will help us out. If we take the Ark of the Covenant, you know, God's uh, indwelling with people is symbolic in this box. We'll take him out to battle. He'll win our battles for us. And he teaches them a lesson there. There's all these lessons to learn about how they're treating God and God can see behind everything that they're doing. But they keep playing the game. But this morning's is a little bit different. They're not just trying to use God. They've actually got a request to God. They're going to him and saying, look, we want something from you that's a little bit different. And the way he responds to that is very helpful for us today because it's the same God that we're talking about today as it is some 3,000 years ago, how he deals with his people back then in Israel. So if we understand what their request is, what is good and bad about their request and just how God feels about their request, we actually learn how do we relate to this God. We're not falling into the trap of just trying to manipulate God, trying to tame him into the, the magic genie that we want him to be. So as we get into the story, we had it read for us, we see uh, they've got a request, and there's nothing wrong with asking for this request. And we get set up, this is what's what's been going on Samuel is the been kind of the closest thing we've had to a hero so far in this story he's a prophet he's a man of God uh, he's a judge so he rules over the people but he's getting old and there's a trouble here there's a there's a question of security for the people if he's getting old who's going to lead us you know Israel's been a, a nation of just different tribes a bit disjointed uh and, but they've had Samuel there to pull everybody together, point them back to God. But now he's getting old. Samuel realised this because he's made moves of going, OK, Israel's going to need a new leader. I've got two sons. How about I put them into leadership? But as you find out, they're, they're corrupt. They're not good leaders. They're not pointing them to God. But they're ones taking bribes. They're the ones doing things unjustly. And the people can see that. And they're going, we don't want them as our leader or as our leaders. We want better security than that. We can see they're just like anybody else, but we want good leaders. So they come up with a plan. This is a situation. There's a need there. They, they need security, something more secure than Samuel's two sons. And we get down to verse 4, <clears throat> and we hear the story where the, the tribe leaders get together in front of Samuel and just plead their case of going, here's a good reason. Here's the reason. And they put out the story, you know, we're worried about the leadership, we want to move forward, we're worried about our security, but we've got a solution. How about you appoint a king over us? Now, up to this point, they haven't had a king. They've had leaders like judges um, and prophets kind of just pointing people to God and leading people uh, that way, justly. Um, but they said, no, we want to go in a different direction. How about you give us a king? Yeah, the problem security your sons aren't going to fix that we want a king to lead us all the other nations have got kings makes sense seems to look good grass is always greener on the other side how about we have a king as well but Samuel when he thinks about this he's not happy he's not happy when they say we want a king to lead us he's going look this is I've been leading he takes it a bit personally even but as it raised a whole bunch of questions and they've put their request out and like anybody's going, what's going on here? Why are you asking for a king? God's looked after you all these years. Uh, is, is there an issue behind it? What's the real agenda? There's a whole bunch of questions. There's a whole bunch of questions about why they want a king. 
and what's going on, what's with their agenda. Now, what they're asking for is not necessarily bad. It's not a bad thing. But there's questions about what is going on. Now, sometimes people will come straight out, as I talked to before. When people ask you for stuff, they come straight out and tell you, and other times they try and deceive you. So I think Samuel's trying to work out their games going on here. I was actually talking to my son, Joel, about this, uh, about asking for stuff and how, um, you know, how do you ask your parents? And we come up with two, two occasions where Joel had asked me, uh, once he asked me uh, for a sleeping bag. He's only, I think, seven or eight years old, asking for a sleeping bag. So what does a seven or eight-year-old want a sleeping bag for? So I asked him straight out, what do you want a sleeping bag for? He says, oh, I'm leaving home. It's like, okay, there it is. Good on you for having the courage to be up front and just telling me straight out. The sleeping bag uh, is seven or eight. Now, when he was 18, 19, he says, Dad, would you mind if I drilled some holes in the concrete slab of the house? And you kind of go, what? That needs more questions too, right? There's a big, bigger deal. What are you drilling holes in the concrete? Uh, and then you dig a bit deeper to get the story. Oh, I want a gun safe. Why do you want a gun? Because I'm going to have some gun. There's other things going on there. One thing leads to another. It's not the first question. You just stop at that and go, oh, that's pretty innocent. There's other stuff often going on. So you've got to be, dig a bit deeper. But here, Samuel hears it and he's not impressed. He says, I know there's something going on. They want, they want a king like the other nations and that's not good. And God is, not also, is, is also not impressed. So Samuel uh, prays to the Lord <clears throat> And he says, listen, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. See, it's interesting what they're saying here. It's not just, uh, Samuel, your boys are doing a bad job. We want a king to be our leader. Uh, but actually, the request is not saying we want a king, but we want a better king than what we got, a different king. See, in your Bibles, if you were reading your Bibles, is the subject heading where it says Israel asks for a king. And if it was that innocent, you'd go, well, it doesn't sound too bad, too radical. But they're asking for a different king. God says, I've been their king. I've been leading them. I've been giving them security. I've been doing all this stuff for them. But yet they're asking not just for a king, but a different king. It goes on where he says in verse 8, As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so are they doing to you. God, God says, I provided for them. What king took them out of slavery in Egypt? I did it. What king's been providing for them? I do. If you've been with us the last few weeks, looking at the last previous chapters, what king's been saving them from the Philistines? It's me. What king's been plundering the Philistines and pushing them back? I've been doing it by myself. God's been their king. But yet Israel said, we don't want this king. We want a different king, a king like the other nations have got. Now, what does God do? So I'll show you a lesson. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, to teach you what it is like to live under my rulership and I'm going to be like a king that's heavy-handed. He doesn't do that. He comes back uh, and says in verse 9, Now listen to them, 
But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. See, their idea of a king is different to God's idea of king. So there's a bit of a history behind this, this whole Israel wanting a king. See, God foresaw, he knew that there was going to be a time where they would want a king to be like the other nations. So back in Deuteronomy 17, this is where Moses was with the people. Uh, He's leading them into the promised land. Before they go in, so they've left Egypt, they're through that long 40-year journey through the desert, they're about to go into the promised land. Moses uh, gives them the, the big speech in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 17, God says through Moses, I know there'll be a time where you'll be in the promised land and you will ask for a king like other nations. So it's kind of going, okay, well, it's been flagged. Even Hannah... In chapter 2 of Samuel, if you were reading Samuel from the start, Hannah uh, alludes to a king. There's this anticipation. We will one day get a king that's physically going to sit on a throne at the front to lead us. It's not wrong to ask for this king because God's been talking about it for a little while. But in Deuteronomy 17, it's a long passage, so I haven't put it up there. It's a long passage, but it talks about this king will be the king that I will appoint. He'll be my king which kind of means he's going to sit under God's authority. There'll be God, almost like God is going to be the capital K king, but he's going to give them a little K king. He's going to function as a king, but he's going to sit under God's kingship. And how is that going to work out? He talks about how this king should uh, dig deep into the scriptures. That he should, and you think at this time you've only got the books of the Bible up to here, but he should rewrite in his own handwriting the scriptures. He's got to know scriptures. Every day he's got to come back to the scriptures. He's got to draw near to God, know what God's like, be dependent on God because he's God's king. This is a king God had in mind. There'll be one day you'll ask for a king. Uh, I'll give you a king of my choice. He'll be my king. He's going to sit under my authority uh, because he's the, God is the ultimate king, right? God is the ultimate king. But this king will sit under my authority and he'll lead the people well and the people will be blessed through this king. So it's not actually wrong to ask for the king. But be careful what you ask for because they're not thinking God's king. They're thinking a king like the other nations, one that's going to lead them into battle, one that's going to sit on the throne and get all these grand, you know, all these gold and glory and run around in his gold chariot, things like that. So this is how different God's idea is to their idea. So it goes on from verse 11. This is Samuel reporting to the people. This is what the king who will reign over you will do, uh, over you will claim as his rights. He will take, and this is a repeated expression, he will take, he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some, will be, uh, some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and to reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attenders. And from verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give, you, uh, give it to his officials and attendants. 
your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkey, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and, your, and you yourselves will become his slaves. You want a king like the other nations? Yeah, grass always looks good on the other side, right? These impressive figures, they ride around and they look so um, glorious and honourable. But he says, dig deeper. What you're asking is changing the, the look of God's people from the 12 tribes and pull them into one rulership under one government and that government's going to tax you. They're going to have inscription for, for, to serve in the armed forces, to run his household. Yeah, things are going to change if you want a king like the other nations. Be careful what you ask for because he says this is very different from God's idea. He goes on to say, when your king does, does that, don't come back to me. Don't come back and complain to me when he's doing that. Because that wasn't my idea of a king. That was your idea of a king. Dad knows best, in a sense. He's, God's functioning like this dad. Is, Let me give you some God the Father wisdom. Don't go down this path. But they go on to say in verse 19, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like the other nations with a king to lead us and to go, into, go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they want. They want security. They see what other nations have got and go, yeah, that's the sort of security. That's what it looks like. They don't realise what they've got in the security that they've already got. See, it's like God said a bit earlier on. These people have been doing it right from the start. They've been chasing other idols. They've been chasing other gods and always pushing me out of the picture. And we do that. Their, their idol now is a king like the other nations. If I want to be like the rest of the world because that's the norm, it seems to work, let's do it their way and, and have this king. But we do it too, don't we? We chase idols and other gods and we come to God and, or innocently and, and ask for stuff and we pursue stuff to be just like the others, to have security because maybe we feel insecure just living under God's kingship. And I was thinking this through. What do we do in place of a king? What do we put as foremost in our mind that we want that thing, like the other nations or like the other people around us? And I was thinking through. I've come up with a few different things. And one is things like possessions. You know, I need this sort of car. I need this sort of house. or I need this sort of stuff. Because everybody else has got it. And it looks good and it's comfortable. It's going to make my life better. But as God said, this king is going to cost you. He's going to take, take, take from you. Yet our idols do the same. You want a bigger house? You want a better car? It's going to cost you. You're going to have to get a bigger mortgage, a bigger loan. You're going to have to find more money. And you're going to have to feed the idol. You're going to have to feed it. You know, a bigger house means more insurance, means more maintenance, means more care. You're going to have to feed it more money, more money, more money to have this idol. If we have that as our king, we live for it, thinking that's going to fulfil us. What about a career? If I only had that career, people would respect me. I'd be a somebody in this world. You know, just like the other nations. I, they could see me in this position and, and respect me because that's who I am. What's that going to cost you? If you want that sort of career to be at the top, it's going to take your time. More time, more training, more hours, more overtime. It's going to take you away from your families, take you away from your life. It's going to take, take, take 
for you to get there. Again, you're feeding the idol with your time, your energy. You make it your focus and it becomes your God. What about even things like leisure? Uh, Australia, we, we work five days a week to get our weekends. Yeah, we live for our leisure, right? Uh, but again, it's a good thing. God gives us leisure, but yet it takes. It takes from us. <clears throat> it takes away, and this is a tricky one I'd think about for a while, how does leisure steal us from God's plan? And I think it comes back to we live in a great country where there's lots of things to enjoy and lots of things to, uh, to do and uh, spend our time in leisure that a taxi takes our eyes off the kingdom, God's kingdom. We're here for such a short term. We're here as a journey to get to heaven. God's got the grand kingdom waiting for us. But instead of working towards God's kingdom, we're going, no, no, my kingdom is a kingdom of leisure here and now. So I'm going to focus on that here and now. I'm going to put away God's kingdom for now. So it takes God's king, takes our eyes off God's kingdom for me and my time and my desires. One more. What about relationships? Because often we see relationships as a part of security, whether it's a boyfriend, a girlfriend, husband or wife, but even a particular workmate, even a particular friend that's going to get us places, they're going to give us security if I'm in the right group. It's eluding. It promises so much, promises that if you're in the right crowd that you're going to get it. But it takes, again, it's taking away from God the security. I'm looking for other things for security. So I'm going to take my security that I get from God, I'm going to take it and give it to my ambitions through relationships. Relationships can promise so much. Be with me, I'll resolve all your issues. So we give it, we give it our attention, we focus on it and we stop focusing on God and we take our security with God and put it into people. And it never works. It never works. We take our focus off God and put it into our idols, put it into our king, in a sense, and that we lose, lose focus on God. All of a sudden, God's just pushed to the side. Pushed to the side. That's what's going on for Israel with their asking for a king. But often we fall into the same traps as well. But actually, what's going on here is more than just details. It's not just a bit of, this is the historical account, these are the details of what's happened and this is the outcome that, that it come out. There's a bigger story going on here, a much bigger story, because God is not just written into the history books, God is real and he's a real personality, he's a real being that, that, um, that we relate to. It's not some philosophy or some idea, but God's very relatable. Now, when we look, we sort of cover these first few verses very quickly but there's something going on in this bigger story with Samuel. Uh, we've been on the journey with Samuel for a while. <clears throat> uh, we get to this point and it just raises a whole bunch of questions. I know it raises a whole bunch of questions for me. Samuel, as I said before, is, so far is the best, the closest thing we've got to a hero in the story. But then we see his two sons aren't following his ways. They've turned their back. Now, it's interesting what the what uh, the writer of Samuel does and what information he gives us and what information he leaves out. He gives us stuff that he really wants us to think about and to ponder on. Did you ever wonder, where's Samuel's wife? We didn't even hear about him getting married. His wife's not even mentioned. Well, has he got other kids? They're not even mentioned or named. But yet his two sons are not only mentioned, but they're named. He wants us to think about the sons because they're mentioned in the detail. So it raises a whole bunch of other questions. 
If Samuel's such a good, godly man, and we assume good, godly father, why did his sons not follow his ways? Shouldn't they have seen his dad at work? Shouldn't he have seen, uh, dad takes God seriously, I need to do that seriously too. But they don't. It's, it's kind of like Eli, who was the priest before Samuel come along, uh, his two sons went corrupt. But they actually pointed to Eli and said, Eli, you've actually tolerated some stuff in your son's life that you shouldn't have. Actually, you've kind of haven't done a great job as a dad. But for Samuel, there's no criticism of Samuel's uh, raising of his sons. So kind of assume he's a good godly man. He hasn't done anything wrong. But his sons, instead of following his ways, they've turned their back and followed other ways. In fact, they're just like the other people of the other nations. And you kind of wonder then, how much Samuel feel? Maybe I think about this because I'm a dad too. How much Samuel, how, how would Samuel feel knowing that his sons aren't following his ways? And the grief that that probably caused him. He's not only trying to set up a succession plan with having his sons as leading the people, but his sons have actually left him in doing that. The grief that had come Samuel. I think we're meant to think about these few verses. I think we're meant to just hang on those questions about what is going on here? What grief is behind? There's a whole, whole chapter in Samuel's life story, his family story, that I'd love to know about. But we're left hanging. How does Samuel feel about this? So I think if this is like a mini story that points us to the next story. Israel come out. They go... We don't want you as king. We want a king for ourselves, a king like the other nations. For God and his people, and God often refers to his people Israel as his children, they're saying, no, we don't want to follow your ways. We want to follow the ways of the world. And we're left with the question, how does God feel about this? God, the, the king, but he's also the father of his children. He's relatable that his kids, Israel, are turning their back on him. Saying, we want what the world's got, not what you're offering in security. All of a sudden, this, this chapter carries a lot of weight. What does Father God do for his children? How much will Father God be grieved when his children turn him away and chase the things of the world? How much do we actually do that to God ourselves? That we go, oh, actually, we want the things of the world and God can just be put in his box or left for another time, I'll do it later in life. And we push him away, chasing other things. How much that must grieve the Father God, that us as his children would do that for him. It's a heavy passage, a heavy passage. And what does God do for all that? Because even though Israel want to put God in a box, they, they, they want to tame God. God, instead of being the big K king, they not only want to make him the little K king, they just want to get him rid of the kingship altogether. They just want to put him away. They might pull him out you know, when they need something. What's God going to do about that? Well, actually, as it plays out, in the bigger story, God lets them have the king they want. You know, instead of God saying, no, this will never happen on my watch, he goes, no, I'll give you a king. I'll give you a king if that's what you're really asking for. It's not, that's how God works. Uh, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, it talks about humanity chasing the ways of the world. Instead of putting God as their ultimate king, they're, they're putting other, they're worshipping everything else but God. And God says, look, if that's what they want, I'll just give them what their hearts desire. They're idols, 
chasing after their worldly pursuits and they'll find dissatisfaction in that because there's no satisfaction in that. God gives you what you want. Be careful what you're asked for because if it's wrong, it will go very wrong. But what does a father God do? Because if you know anybody whose uh, children go wandering, do they ever stop loving them? They don't. They keep loving, keep trying to draw them back, keep trying to steer them in the right direction. And this is what Father God does as the ultimate king. So we see as we keep reading, we get on to God sending his own king in Jesus. So look, you've had enough go at this. Your own kings have gone just like the rest of the world. Uh, That's no surprise. The kingdom of Israel has been turned on its head. They've gone through exiles. They've had the Romans come in and other people come in to, to blow them up in a sense. They've got nothing. Then God sends them his king in Jesus, God's own son, to rescue the world. But God's king is shown to be very different. So King Jesus comes, as God's king comes, reflecting on who God is, Father God is. That Jesus comes out, he's so well read up on scriptures, remember he's born into a Jewish culture, that he would go down um, to the temple and he would be teaching some of the scribes, some of the, the academics about how, who God is and how he works. So this Jesus is different. He's, he's close to God. He's drawn near to God. He's fully dependent on God. He points everybody else to God, points others to the kingdom, the real kingdom. That even though Jesus, when he was arrested uh, by the Romans, set up by the Jews, so we don't like this sort of king. Let's hand him over to the Romans to be killed. What's the charge? He claims to be a king. He claims to be a king. And the Romans don't like other kings. They like themselves as kings. That, so they interview Jesus. So is it true that you're a king? Jesus replies, you know, there's some word games going on about, uh, is that what you say? Is that what you think? But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. He's got a bigger kingdom going on than this world. But what he's doing in this world is coming to call his people home. And what he's doing as this king, when he was put on trial, he's found as innocent, but they killed him anyway. They What he's doing through that, he's a king that not just comes to take, 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 but he's a king that comes to give and give and give. It's explained to us in a number of passages uh, throughout the New Testament, but one that's fairly short is in Galatians chapter 1, reading from verse 3. This is the start of a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people, and he says in the start of his letter, explaining who he is and who they are as his readers, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord's an interesting term. Lord uh, is good manners to talk to anybody who's sort of above you in their hierarchic sense. Uh, So a number of people called Lord. But this idea of Christ is another way of saying he's a Messiah or King. So what Paul's saying is grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus King. This is who sent me. This Lord Jesus King who gave himself for our sins. He didn't come to take. But everywhere he went, he gave himself. Lowered himself as the son of God, being born as a baby. As coming to be, I took up a trade as a carpenter. 
just worked the human life like we did, but at the right time started performing miracles and teaching and pointing people towards God. That he gave, he healed people. To ultimately, he came to forgive them and bring them into the kingdom. He gave everything, even his life, to be killed on a cross, to be put in a grave. He gave. That's God's king. That's the one I want to sit under. A, a king or an idol or a God that's going to take, take, take. is foolish. But a king that's going to give and give me life to deal with my biggest problem as sin, to give me life eternal and take me into heaven, the greater kingdom, that's the one I want to follow. A king that's going to give himself for me. He says, uh, he gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, saying, you can be just like the rest of the world. You can choose that today. I don't want this God. I just want what the rest of the world's got. He's saying, that's going to sink you. It's going to end bad. But trusting King Jesus, he rescues us from the present evil age, according to the will of the Father, to whom the glory forever and ever, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a great little summary of Jesus the King, what he's come to do for each of us. So who is your king? And, and how do we come before him with our requests? Do we come before him saying, God, I want this other stuff. But in a sense, you know this other stuff's going to draw me away from God and his kingdom. Or do we say, God, I want what you want. You're the great king. You're, you're, the great, you're my heavenly father. You know what's best for me. And I'm going to pray that I follow your lead. Trust in you for my security. Trusting you that you've got everything under control. And we do that through Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to do that this Father's Day. I know we celebrate dads, but think of God, our great Father, the one that truly loves us, that truly tries to draw us back, and the one that truly saves us through Son Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father, thanks for your love for us. That often, when we hear these stories about the Israelites, we, we just think of how foolish they are. They don't learn their lesson. They keep making bad choices and turning their back on you. But as we dig deeper into our own hearts, we know we do the same. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness in that. That as we've wandered far from you, that you would draw us back. We thank you for your grace and love towards us, that you would send your son Jesus not to take, but to give, to give and restore us. Lord, help us to live under his leadership, that he is our king, a king we can trust, not like the, what the world is offering. And Lord, help us to trust in him till either we're called home or you return to call us home, that we will celebrate this fact and celebrate your kingship when we're in heaven with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together again our song for this series, Only a Holy God. This song is so good because it reminds us not to take our eyes off our king. We have the greatest king. Our God, his glory consumes like fire. He raises the dead. He's undefeated. And in the same breath, he rescues us from our failings by offering his only son and invites us to call him father. And this is why we come and behold him. So please stand as we join together and worship our holy God.